Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. What we've been doing this quarter is we've been looking at um, questions that Jesus asked, and tonight we're looking at a, t- a question that he asked Peter in John 21. Um, a little bit of context, this is after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and he is reconnecting with his followers for the first time. Uh, they've gone, I'm actually going to start reading in verse 9 and read through verse 17. Uh, they've gone fishing. Um, and Jesus comes to the shore and starts to prepare breakfast for them, and they see him on the shore, uh, the man they've been following for a number of years, uh, who they saw die and who's now risen. So this is their interaction with him as they come back from fishing. And we'll talk about it. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. And the fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Jesus believes in breakfast. First application. There was bacon. Uh, It's hard to, you know, it's debatable in the Greek, but I'm pretty sure there's bacon. Now none of the disciples, there was coffee too. Um, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus, re- that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him again, said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, teach us from Your Word. Teach us about Your love. Let us not be hardened to it. Let us entertain the possibility that You could love us in a way that we could never imagine, that there is really good news, better news than we could receive about anything else, that there is hope in Your love. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so I was looking over my notes and I realized I just have a lot of illustrations from pop culture up front tonight. And what I want to say about that, because I feel a little bit insecure about it, because I'm starting right in with an HBO illustration, um, is this. Good art helps us figure ourselves out. And so it is not like pastor trying to be relevant, because half the things I... Y'all haven't seen Fight Club, you haven't seen Westworld. Half the things I reference, y'all haven't even seen. So I'm not trying to be cool. It actually is a belief that good art helps us understand ourselves and understand true things. That is me trying to not feel so insecure about having a lot of pop culture illustrations in the first ten minutes. Here we go. (laughs) Opening scene, episode one, season one of Silicon Valley. I hope you've seen this. If you haven't, like Fight Club, I will watch that with you this week. 
if you remember the opening scene, what it is is this this party in like in a Palo Alto neighborhood, and it's this huge, expensive. Kid Rock is the entertainment, like expensive food, expensive decorations, and the but the party itself and the energy is like it's half attended, it's awkward, it's all these like pro, it's it's not all these programmers, it's a handful of programmers trying to pretend like they're having a great time at this incredible like expensive party with this amazing entertainment, but it's painfully awkward because it's mostly empty. And then what happens is a guy jumps on stage and here's what he says. I love, he says, seven words. I love Goolybib's integrated multi-platform functionality. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, woo, right? It feels as awkward as it feels right now. That was and he says, but seriously, you know, a few days ago, when we were sitting down with Barack Obama, I turned to these guys and said, okay, you know, we're making a lot of money, and yes, we're disrupting digital media, but most importantly, we're making the world a better place through constructing elegant hierarchies for maximum code reuse and extensibility. And just, like, capture Silicon Valley right there, right? <laughs> and there's, like, there's so many levels of satire and mockery there. We can't talk about all of them. I wish we could. Here's the one that I like about that, and that's relevant for tonight, is we know we're supposed to be passionate about something. Uh, We know that we're supposed to love something, to feel like we're giving ourselves to something meaningful. Right? And so what happens is, if we don't find anything love-worthy... We'll actually try to pretend that we're really passionate about something that on one level we probably know is not really love-worthy or really kind of quite do the kind of passion we want to give it. And what we'll do is we'll just kind of hope, like, I'll just try as hard as I can to be passionate about this. I'll try as hard as I can to really love this. And if nothing else, maybe it'll make me at least feel important, right? And a lot of times in RUF, if you come... We'll talk about our need to be loved. Uh, We have these feelings, everybody does, that signal to us that we were made to be loved. Uh, Whenever you use the word enough in reference to yourself and your imagination, uh, am I attractive enough, smart enough, religious enough, sociable enough, Uh, When you talk about when you feel guilty, when you feel insecure, those are all signals telling you that you're made to be loved and you're not sure if you're love-worthy. Anytime that word enough comes into your own imaginary about yourself, that's you wondering, am I love-worthy? That's a signal telling you you're made to be loved. But being loved is only half what it means to be a person. We are also made to love. And the gospel is not just that God loves you, it's also that He is the one worthy of all of your love. And so if if you're a Christian, maybe one of the reasons that a lot of times we feel thin, like our spiritual experience, right, our internal spiritual life, that we wish there was vibrancy there, I think one of the reasons sometimes it feels weak or thin is because a lot of times we relate to God like He's a scholarship donor. If any of you are on a scholarship with a scholarship donor... Who that person is, is someone who really, really, really cares about you, who's given a ton towards your success in life, and the way we relate to them is you write them a thank you note twice a quarter, and they're like, hey, you're right, I'm so thankful. And then you got to get back to your life. 
And a lot of times that's how we're relating to God. And the gospel is an invitation into loving relationship. And that means being loved and loving. That means being known and knowing. Knowing about Jesus and loving Jesus are two different things. I want you all to see tonight that we have two fundamental questions. And think about these two fundamental questions. Am I loved? Can I be loved? But then secondly, do I love? Right now, you're wondering, have I found or can I find a major that I love? How do I find a person that I could love? How do I find friends that I love? How do I find a cause that I love? How do I find a job that I can love? A place that I could love living? You are made to love. You have this thing in you looking for something to love all the time. And Jesus asked Peter, and the question is also put to us, do you love me? And before we kind of get into the text, we've got to do a couple more pop culture illustrations. Sorry. I w- let's be honest for a second, and this includes me. Uh, do we want to love Jesus? I think a lot of times, if you identify as a Christian and you're on board with this, a lot of times we think, we're not we think, we're afraid... You know, we hear Jesus' command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And we wonder, like, okay, but if I do that, I'm not going to have time for all the other things I like. Like, there's this competition between loving God the way Jesus says we're supposed to love God, but then, like, all the stuff we're supposed to do for all the other things we like. But that's a false dichotomy. And I was reading someone who kind of examined the way Sebastian, Johann Sebastian Bach's career, and he said this, that when Bach was asked why he became a composer, here's what Bach said about being a composer. The aim and final and final end of all my music is nothing less than the glorification of God and the enjoyment of man. One of the greatest composers... His love for music was not in competition to his love for God, but it was actually in service to and an expression of his love for God. He didn't use music, he didn't love music in order to make a name for himself, in order to justify himself, in order to become great. He made music because it was his love for God, actually because he loved God and man, which is Jesus' summary of the law. His, his love for music actually served a greater love. There's a great movie called Chariots of Fire, an older one, and it's based on the true story of two sprinters from the 1924 Olympics. And you view the Olympics uh, kind of through their perspective, a guy named Harold, Harold Abrahams and a guy named Eric Liddell. And the way they encounter their athletic career is kind of what's viewed in this movie. And here's what Harold Abrahams says about his sprinting career and about this race in the 1924 Olympics. He says, In one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and I will look down that corridor that's four feet wide and I have ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence, but will I? His friend, the other main character in the movie, is a guy named Eric Liddell, who's also a Christian missionary. This is how he talks about getting ready to sprint. God made me fast, and when I run, I feel His pleasure. Same exact task. Completely different approaches. And the Bible actually gives a lot of warnings 
a lot of alerts to how to detect when our loves are getting out of proportion, when the things we like are actually in competition with our love for God instead of in service to our love for God. So here's some. This one's like really, it's a really easy metric actually. It's kind of annoying. If you can't rest one entire day out of seven, your loves are out of order. That's a simple one. It's just the Sabbath principle. God's like, no, no, no. If it controls you seven days out of seven, you've lost sight. If you can't stop and enjoy your, the product of your work and enjoy me and enjoy my community one day out of seven, you're out of order. So there's a really hard objective kind of metric. That one's really frustrating, isn't it? Because you're like, oh, I was wanting God to be specific. Now he is. That's annoying. <laughs> well, there you go. Here's another one. If it disintegrates relationships and divides you against people, whether if it makes you judgmental or angry through competition, through contempt, through jealousy, through comparison, makes you feel like you're better than people or worse than people, then that means whatever it is, your love for it is out of order. It's disordered. It's out of proportion. Here's another one. If you can't value yourself apart from those things, if you can't construe a way of you being a valuable person, if you're mediocre or even worse, a failure, then your love or like for that thing is out of order. It's out of proportion. It's broken. Because when those things are happening, that means our loves are disordered. They're actually in competition with our love for God. That means that we're loving the little things like they're the first things, and the first thing we're loving like it's a little thing. Second to last pop culture illustration, and then we're going to get into the text. After the next pop culture illustration. <laughs> Who's seen Whiplash? Please tell me y'all have seen Whiplash. No. Oh my gosh. Oh, it's amazing. Okay? It's about this guy trying to make it as a jazz drummer, and it's about the intensity of that pursuit and the music school that he goes to and everything. The character's name is Andrew, and this is his breakup monologue he has with Nicole. <clears throat> Here you go. I'm just going to lay it out there. This is why I don't think we should be together, and I've thought about it a lot, and this is what's going to happen. I'm going to keep pursuing what I'm pursuing, and because I'm doing that, it's going to take up more and more of my time, and I'm not going to be able to spend as much time with you. And when I do spend time with you, I'm going to be thinking about drumming. I'm going to be thinking about jazz music, my charts, all that. And because of that, you're going to start to resent me, and you're going to tell me to ease up on the drumming and spend more time with you because you're not feeling important. And I'm not going to be able to do that. And really, I'm going to start to resent you for asking me to stop drumming. And we're just not going to start to hate each other. And it's going to get very, it's going to be ugly. So those are the reasons. I'd rather just, you know, break it off clean right now because I want to be great. This movie is amazing. The movie is about how when you love one thing, jazz drumming, and this above all else, when he loved the idea of him becoming great in this specific area, it destroyed his life. His loves were out of order. You were made to love, you were made to love something more than your grades. Oh my gosh. You were made to love something more than Stanford, and more you're loved, made to love something more than your friends, more than a potential boyfriend or girlfriend, more than success, even more than your job, even more than your children one day. None of those things can bear the weight of your love. When you ask those things to be your chief love, you will strangle them. You have to have a higher and worthier love 
And that's what will bring order and peace and even delight into school and into friendship and into romance and into parenting and into work. The higher love is not in competition to the other loves. It recruits and actually brings them into its service and then rightly orders them for you. Last pop culture illustration, then we're going to the text. Princess Bride. Yes, yes. Okay. Thank you. Trying to connect with the millennials. So it's the story of Wesley and Princess and Buttercup. And Grandpa's telling the story to his son about uh, Princess and Buttercup. This is what he says. Nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Wesley's the farm boy. And and this is what uh, it cuts to. She says, farm boy, polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it by morning. And Wesley says, as you wish. And Grandpa says, as you wish is all he ever said to her. Buttercup. Farm boy, fill this water, please. Wesley says, as you wish. Farm boy, fetch my pitcher. Wesley says, as you wish. Here's what Grandpa concludes. That day... She finally discovered that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. Here's my point. It's not about what he did. It's not even about being passionate about the task or thinking that it's a very important task for the world. It was about who he loved. When you have someone to love, here's the amazing thing. You will actually have a broader capacity to enjoy and do anything. As opposed to find the most important thing so you can feel important. If you have someone to love when you do it, and someone to love that you do it for, then you can polish saddles with love, and you will be full. This is actually what Paul's getting at in his letter to Corinth when he says, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. This is Jesus' invitation to Peter when he says, do you love me? And the fact that we're so choosy and we're so non-committal is actually a signal not that there are just too many great things to choose from and we can't choose and we're just stuck on, this, on the grocery aisle of life and there's a bajillion of our cereals and we're like, I don't know, they all look great. That's not the problem. The fact that we can't choose is a signal to you that you haven't found the one thing that is worthy of all your love. Because what you'll try to do is you'll try to latch on to something and you'll constantly feel like, but that doesn't feel like it's enough to give all of my love to. But I need to love something, so I'm going to try to convince myself this is worthy. So here's our question, and now we'll go to the text. How do we find our first love? And by that, I don't mean how do we identify it. I mean, how do we unleash it? How do we begin to experience what it means to love the most important thing? And this is our UF. We're going to talk about Jesus. Y'all already know the answer of who it is, what the first thing to love is. It's the person of Jesus. It is the God who loves us. And so when I ask, how do we find our first love? I mean, how does love for Jesus become this thing in us that we experience and feel and begin to devote our lives to and actually begin to order and enjoy everything else we do in light of that love? And this is where the encounter with Peter teaches us. Here's the thing about our love. Here's the thing about your love, your ability to love. This is how God made us. Our ability to love is a second thing. 
is what it is is it's like potential energy. It can only be unleashed as a response to something. It has to be catalyzed by something else. It has to be called forth into action. So we feel it. We feel we want something in us. We want something to compel us, right? And we're and we're drawn to epic stories. Right? We could do we have movies, novels all day on this. We're drawn to epic stories because in them we see someone who has found something that has unleashed their love. They're like, oh my gosh, they've found something that has called forth all of their love. And what happens is when you look at those stories, when they have real love, this is what they have. They have freedom. Right? They make sacrifice, they're strong, they're sure. God made our love as a responding love. Something has to happen to call it into action. Until then, what we do is we mimic loving things, but it won't be the kind of love that we know that we're made to have. Here's how you know. Because once you start to love, when you really start to love, here's what will never happen. You'll never calculate the cost. When you really found something worthy of all your love, there won't even be any more cost-benefit analysis. You will think that no matter what that, I'm directing my life that way, period. I don't care what the world thinks. I don't care what it costs. That's what freedom feels like. Only, only love can produce freedom. So how does our love get catalyzed? And this is, the, this is the twist. It doesn't happen the way we think. When we look at Peter, there's some important textual details we're going to talk about for a second. But Peter begins to teach us how our love is catalyzed. And there's this detail that we started with in verse 9. They get out of the boat, and there's a charcoal fire. There's one other place in the Gospels, in the New Testament, that a charcoal fire is described. And John, he's a literary person. He knows what he's doing. And we're literary people. We know how to read things, right? There's one other time that there's a charcoal fire in the Gospels. It's in John 18. And it's Peter standing by a charcoal fire, and it's when he denies and betrays Jesus three times. Was back before that even happens, before Peter denies Jesus. In Matthew 26, the disciples are actually at the Last Supper. This is before the arrest of Jesus, before Peter denies him. And Jesus is explaining to his best friends the events that are about to unfold. He's like, I'm going to be arrested, things are going to get crazy. And he says this, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. And he's telling the disciples, he's saying, you followed me, but I'm about to be arrested and tried and y'all are going to scatter. Here's Peter's response, Matthew 26, 33. Though they may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Verse 35, even, I have to, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. Here's Peter, not me. I'm for real. Jesus, you don't know what I'm capable of. I'm all in. I'm committed way more than anybody else. Then when we meet Peter by his first charcoal fire in John 18... Jesus is arrested, and people start to look around and identify Jesus' followers. And three different people identify Peter. And three different times, he says, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know this Jesus person. Peter was so sure of himself, so sure that he could handle it, so sure of his loyalty, of his capacity. He knew who he was. He had passion. He was all in. He told Jesus, even if I have to die, I'm with you. How does our love get catalyzed? 
Does it look... Does it happen by looking within yourself and gathering up all your willpower and your zeal and your energy and saying, that's it, I'm all in? No. That is not what draws your love out. By looking... And that's what Peter thought. And like us, with his self-assurance that he truly deeply believed in, the best he could make of himself at the end of the day was still a fraud. He was confident and tough and competitive and competent exterior, and it hid a fearful and selfish and scared interior, and that's us. But here's the amazing thing. That's Peter's denial. We're talking about this episode right here. A couple of weeks later, we meet Peter in the book of Acts. And Peter... In the book of Acts, at the very beginning, in Acts 2, preaches a sermon that is the greatest sermon the world has ever heard. This is a historical truth. We are still experiencing the effects of the sermon he preached in Acts 2 today. That sermon is called Pentecost. It's the first time the gospel went out beyond the Jewish people to all the Gentiles. The reason we're actually talking about the gospel in California today is because of the repercussions of that sermon in Acts 2. That's how significant it was. In Acts 12, Jesus, Peter will actually be arrested for following and proclaiming Jesus. So how do we get to the Jesus who's super confident in himself, betray, or the Peter who's super confident in himself, betrays his friend, lies about it. He actually lies about it even to a servant girl. It's not even authority figures. He lies about his association with Jesus to a servant girl. To being the person that preaches the most influential sermon in the history of the world. And will he go on to be arrested for it? What's the difference between the Peter so full of self-assurance that denied Jesus and the Peter that was arrested for Jesus? The difference is this story right here. The threefold question, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Is Jesus restoring Peter three times? He's inviting Peter out of his failure, back into a restored relationship with him. Jesus is not doing the, one of the two things that we normally do in this situation. He's not ignoring the offense. We like to do that. It's too awkward to bring up. Let's just not talk about it. That's what we prefer to do. This happened. Let's not bring it up. Restoration, intimacy, mutual enjoyment, and mutual trust can't occur in a friendship if you don't bring up the offenses. Right? Jesus is not doing that. He's not ignoring it. But secondly, He's actually not raking Peter over the coals. He's inviting him back into relationship. How do we know that? Because we think, ah, it feels like he's kind of raking over the coals. Like, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter, do you love me? Right? Three times. Notice what I did there, Peter? No, he's not doing that. <laughs> there is sarcasm in the Bible. This is not it. Here's how we know. A, because the whole scene begins with Jesus serving Peter, preparing him breakfast. You don't serve the people that betray you. And if that's not more convincing, at the end of this sequence, Jesus places into Peter's care Jesus' most precious things. His people. That's restoration. That's like a dad giving his child the keys to the Tesla the day after he wrecked the Mercedes. That's like, hey, I've put that away and I trust you and I love you. That's restoration. There's no more sure sign that a relationship has been restored than when you entrust someone with precious responsibility. 
And the reason that we're not sure that we're loved is because the main way we go through life is like Peter beforehand. I got this. I can do this. Peter was saying to Jesus, you don't know me, Jesus. Jesus says, y'all are going to fall away. Peter's like, you don't know me. I can do this. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to make our best selves in hopes that God will love our best selves, or at least someone else will love our best selves. So we're trying to craft and create the best possible version of me. So either God will love me, or at least someone will love me. And of course, we're working completely out of fear, and we're building a big, fancy facade around our real selves, our falling apart selves, our sinful selves, our fearful selves, and we hope someone's going to approve of the facade. And here's what happens If someone approves of our facade, here's how you'll feel. You'll feel completely unsure as to whether or not anyone loves you. That's why you feel like an imposter at Stanford. Someone approved of your facade. And now you're here and you're like, but I don't know if anybody really approves of me. Peter, in this moment, gets what we need, and this is what ignites in him a love for Jesus that then governs his life. A love for Jesus that is so deep and so full that he will die for Jesus. He really will, and he does. Peter experienced being loved by someone who knew the worst about him. And Jesus wasn't simply aware of the worst about Peter Jesus was the one betrayed by the worst about Peter. He was the one toward which Peter's worst qualities were directed. And this is why on the third, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. This is Peter saying, and this is your opportunity to say, and our opportunity to say, Lord, you know the worst about me, that I've never really loved you that I'm full of sin, that I'm a fraud, that I'm afraid, that I pretend all the time, like I'm so confident, that I'm a hypocrite, that I'm racist, that I'm judgmental, that I'm addicted to pornography, that I can't endure weekends without numbing myself to sensuality, that I don't care about holiness, that I hate your law instead of seeing it as your goodness, that I don't care about obedience, that I am a fake Christian, that I am a hypocrite. You know everything. We keep angling to get someone to love the best about us. And that will never induce your love. That just creates further anxiety to maintain your image campaign. We, know, we need someone who knows the worst about us and loves us. And then what happens for Peter is Peter's God-created potential to love explodes and he becomes full of love for Jesus. And this is First John... <laughs> We love because first, before we love, He loved us. You can never know you're truly loved until you are loved at your worst. This is what happened in Peter's heart. How he went from being fully assured of himself, which did nothing but deceive himself, to fully sure of Jesus' love. To, for you to love, for me to love, here's what has to happen. We have to go through the grief of honesty. Peter was grieved when Jesus asked him these questions. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul t- says there's two kinds of grief. We all go through grief. The question is, what, 
approach will we take to it? The first grief is when we turn to ourselves to make things right. We go through the grief of discovering ourselves and we turn ourselves to make things right, to do better, and to hide who we are. And Paul says that grief leads to death. It locks away the possibility of love. But then, talking to the church at Corinth, he says, but there's a godly grief. And godly grief produces repentance. It's grief that actually leads to love. And repentance is an important word. It doesn't mean beat yourself up and show God that you really deserve mercy because look how sorry you are. That's not what it means. The word is metanoia, change your mind, to turn your mind from self to Jesus. Godly grief is what happens when you discover who you are and you realize Jesus has always known who you are. And instead of turning from Him and running and hiding and working harder, you turn to Him. And he's looking at Peter in this scene, and they're on the other side of the cross now. And Peter knows, you know everything, and you love me. Of course I love you. You can never, ever really love the way that you're meant to truly love until you encounter the person who knows the most about you and knows the worst about you and discover that they still love you. Every other love that you try to generate until then is just a shadow of that kind of love. And you'll know it. You'll want to deny it because you need to love so badly, but you'll know it. There's no one who knows more about the worst parts of us than the one who paid the price for the worst parts of us. Jesus knows who you are more than you know yourself, and He loves you. And Jesus' response, when, when that flicker of love begins in your heart. And you're like, he loves me so much, maybe I, maybe I love him. What do I do? Here's his response to Peter, feed my sheep. And that's his response to us as well. When, when we said, when your first love is restored, then all your other loves begin to become rightly ordered. They fall into place. What Jesus is saying is like, now that you know my love and now that you're beginning to love me, here's what it looks like for all the other loves to get rightly ordered. First thing... Love my people. Jesus earlier in Matthew 4 says, Man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Feeding is constant imagery of the Bible for meditating on and marinating in the word of God, the word of His promise, the word of His grace. Letting Scripture become your grid through which you understand the world and yourself and God and His mercy. Jesus is saying, You know my love now. And love is maybe beginning to grow in your hearts. So if you love me... Go and be the hands and the feet and carry the words of my love to the people around you. Jesus meets us in our emptiness with His fullness. And His fullness is intended to overflow from us into the fullness of others. His call to love, His call for you tonight to feed my sheep is Him saying like, I know you wrecked the Mercedes, but I'm giving into your care the love of your roommate the love of the person sitting next to you tonight, the love of the person sitting next to you in class tomorrow, those are Jesus' favorite things. And He knows the worst about you, and He's forgiven you, and here's how you know He loves you, is because He set someone next to you tonight, and He loves that person. He's saying, will you take care of them for me? Will you show them my love? You can trust that you're restored to Him. Let's pray.